Howdy, everyone. Happy Memorial Day. It's, it's uh, May 30th, Monday, May 30th today. Uh, welcome to Unsafe Space. You're watching Narrative Dissonance, which is a show we do every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific. The time has moved, so if you're used to watching us at 11 a.m. Pacific, here we are at 2 p.m. in the future. Uh, so welcome. This is a show we do where we talk about um, basically what the mainstream media is getting wrong, how we're being misled, what we should be paying attention to. We try and question the mainstream narratives. Um, you can watch us on unsafespace.com where this is a embedded stream. All of our shows, all of our live streams are embedded uh, and go live on unsafespace.com. Or you can be on your favorite, you know, favorite platform, YouTube, uh, if you really want to be, or Odyssey, or uh, Rumble, Utreon, all those. Uh, also, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore unsafe space. And uh, don't forget to share this episode or any episode, any content with a friend. You don't have to do it publicly. If you're shy about being a wrong thinker, it's okay. Send it in a DM. You can even send it and say, can you believe this jackass saying this stuff? And you can act like, you know, you don't agree. And then see what they say. I don't care. Just share it. It helps. Uh, next book club we have is June 12th. It's House of Leaves by Mark Danielowski. The host is Alex Maselli, who hosts our 451 Degrees podcast. So check that out. I have started to read the book. It's not a fast read. It's uh, It requires work to read this book. So I would start now if you're interested in it. It looks really interesting, and it seems kind of fascinating and trippy. But it's, uh, you know, you don't just lounge around by the pool and knock it out in an afternoon. So uh, get started if you want to join that. All right. Without further ado, let's talk to uh, let's bring on this this week's media panel. We have uh, our first guest is Dave DeCamp. Dave is the news editor of Antiwar.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Dave or sorry at DeCamp Dave D E C A M P D A V E. Dave, welcome. Hey, Carter. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And just remind everyone, Antiwar.com. That is we've interviewed Scott Horton a few times. That's his. Uh, that's his anti-war website, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. yeah. He's one of the editorial directors. Uh, the real uh, behind-the-scenes man who's been running it since it was founded in 1995 is Eric Garris. He co-founded okay. it with just Justin Romando, who is the big columnist for years and years, um, who passed away in 2019. But yeah, Eric, uh, he's the one. He he puts in a lot of work to run that site, and of course, oh, Scott does okay. too. <laughs> I didn't know the the background. I just thought of it as Scott's site generally but that's that's good good background info mm -hmm. um and also let's welcome adam b coleman adam is the author of black victim to black victor which i can't reach but it's on the shelf behind me or i would reach and show you guys uh he's an op-ed writer he's a public speaker host of a good faith space twitter spaces uh show and the founder of wrong speak publishing you can follow him on twitter at wrong underscore speak adam welcome thank you for having me i appreciate it Thanks for joining. So, uh, Dave, let's just start. Let's just start off the discussion with with you. I'll just ask you because uh, we only have an hour with you, so we're going to try and cram everything in all the Dave <laughs> stuff we can in the first hour. What's the most important story about which the mainstream media has been misleading us in the past week or so? Well, so I thought about that question a lot today, and um, it's kind of something that they've been mis misleading us about for the past few months, for about two months. We've been led to believe that Ukraine, uh, you know, had a chance of winning this war against Russia. And that narrative um, has fed into, uh, I think, is a big part of the reason why, um, you know, 
Biden Congress passed this $40 billion uh, aid bill for Ukraine. I mean, it's just an astronomical number. It's something we can't uh, I was just uh, been so kind of shocked at how much money we're sending to Ukraine. It's, it's 54 billion now, including all the yep. all the new aid, you know, um, and the reason why the public has gone along with this to some extent now people are starting to wake up because it's such so much money when we have so many problems yeah. here but part of the reason why is because they're like oh ukraine can win they're, ukraine's winning uh and the, the part of the reason you know how they did this was because russia they withdrew from areas near kiev uh in the north where they where they went in uh to focus in the east so they they called that a retreat and they said, oh, Ukraine, you know, they have this. It's been a brutal fight. A lot of people have died. Um, it's tough to know exactly how many, you know, Ukraine is exaggerating the Russian deaths and downplaying their own. And Russia's probably doing something similar. Uh, but we know thousands and thousands of troops on both sides have died. And it's a brutal, long, bloody war that we've seen so far. But in the east, in the eastern Donbass region, which is, you know, borders Russia, uh, you know, in no world would any military analyst say that Russia can't win there you know um they've been right. slowly making gains and you know the war's grinding on and and russia is winning in that this part of the war and the media over the past week just started kind of admitting that and there's all these articles now in the washington post and new york times saying you know how describing in pretty good detail how badly uh U ukraine's uh military is, is really hurting uh they talked to some ukrainian volunteers who just you know, volunteered to, to fight Russia right after they invaded, who were sent to the front lines with barely any training, barely any equipment. They're only eating a potato a day. Um, so now we're getting this kind of the real, what seems like the real narrative of, of what's happening on the ground. But, uh, you know, they're kind of spinning it as, oh, we have to send them more weapons now. This is why we have to send them all these weapons, these long range rockets that uh, Ukraine has been asking for for a few months. Um, so this this was interesting today. This is kind of uh, you could see how the how the hawks in the government kind of use the media. On Friday, there was reports that the U.S. was going to send these long-range rockets to Ukraine that can hit Russian territory, which would be a huge escalation. Um, you know, yeah. if Ukraine has the ability to actually launch attacks inside Russia with American weapons. But then uh, today, Biden said he's not going to. But I mean, and who knows? You know, we can't really take him for his word. Uh, but <laughs> he might not know what he's about to do. Yeah, it's true. And and they've changed. They keep kind of moving, shifting the goalposts. At first, they were afraid to to tell for Russia to know that we were sending Ukraine Stinger missiles. They're the portable anti-aircraft missiles that we gave the Mujahideen in Afghanistan in the 80s kind of infamously. And that all worked yep. out great for uh, for everybody. But um, yep. And they were afraid to, to, for Russia to know that we were sending them Stingers. This is when they first invaded. And now we're sending them howitzers, all this heavy artillery and stuff. And, and they like bragging about it. Uh, so it's just everything is changing. So Biden might still be hesitant to send those rockets, but who knows? I mean, things can change in a couple of days. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it is hard to tell because I, I read, so Scott Ritter wrote an article. Uh, I saw it today. I don't know when it came out. I think it might've come out today in consortium news mm -hmm. about um, Russia being at phase three and, and his, his contention was, and I actually don't know. I don't know whether this is true or not, but his contention was that Russia, from the beginning, has kind of said, "Look, you know, we're going to go in and attack the infrastructure in Ukraine so that they can't be resisting." But we're really focused on Luhansk and Donetsk, which is the mm -hmm. that 
in the Donbas region. And these are two areas, just to remind people, they've been fighting Kiev for eight years. They've been at war with Kiev because they want independence from Ukraine. Uh, so, and and they asked they they asked to join Russia. Russia said no. But right before the Ukraine invasion, Putin said, "Okay, we recognize your independence." Um, and according to Russia, again, it's hard to tell because you can't tell who's propaganda. It's propaganda on both sides. But according to Russia, it's like, okay, well, we went in, we did our thing with the rest of Ukraine, and now we're kind of focusing on the main goal, which was liberating Donbass. And, Mm -hmm. you know, their contention was, or Scott Ritter's contention was, uh, you know, all this military aid that the U.S. sent and other nations sent, and and not just aid, intelligence. Like, we let the Ukrainians use our GPS and NATO's GPS and, and, like, give them intelligence. Like, we've been doing a lot of soft support for this. And the argument is that that actually just prolonged the war and prolonged and increase the number of deaths because it it just Russia didn't really have a plan to go. They're not there. They weren't planning to go annihilate all Ukrainian civilians. That wasn't their plan, mm-hmm. right? They were trying to dismantle the infrastructure and save, say, liberate quote liberate Donbass. Again, I don't know how much of that's propaganda, yeah. but it's so it's so hard to tell. But you do wonder, gee, what does fifty eight billion dollars buy you in terms of dead bodies? Probably a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to think, you know, so when they first invaded, you know, they did say liberating the Donbass was always a goal or, you know, quote unquote liberating, however you look at it. Um, But they also said they were going to denazify the country and demilitarize it. And, um, you know, there there are not, you know, far right. That word kind of has lost its meaning, I think. But, you know, people, literal Nazis uh, in, you know, most infamously is Ukraine's uh, the Azov Battalion. They were a neo-Nazi militia that was integrated into Ukraine's National Guard. So there's there is a Nazi element in, in their military. I, me personally, I'm not an expert on Ukraine's it, the inner politics. I don't know exactly how influential they are, but they're there. And, but so if that's their goal, denazification, that can be stretched to mean a lot of things. Same thing with demilitarization. Does that mean that he wants to go into Kiev and take out the government and completely dismantle the military and occupy it until they, you know for however long? Um, it could, but, or it could just mean that they're going to destroy military infrastructure like they said they did. All those strikes, you know, that first phase of the war when they were going towards Kiev, you know, if you look at um, the Russian Ministry of Defense on, on Telegram, they're always putting updates. They destroyed this many Ukrainian uh, tanks, let's say, all this infrastructure they're taking out. And then uh, I think the biggest argument that they weren't trying to conquer Kiev is that they didn't really bomb it. There was no strategic bombing campaign, which is a term I don't really like because that basically means obliterating a city, bombing civilian infrastructure, bombing supply lines, you know, what the U.S. did to many countries in the Middle East. (laughs) And uh, so uh, they didn't do that. And and that tells me, but again, I, I really don't know. It's tough to say. I think they kept their goals kind of vague in the beginning, but then after the first month, they made it clear that it's going to be focused on the East. And you said the longer the war goes on, the longer the U.S. keeps giving Ukraine support. You have Zelensky and and the the leaders in Kiev. Um, they, they they don't seem to care about the you know sending more and more bodies at this Russian war machine as long as they're getting the support from the U.S. and NATO. When they're getting a ton of support, I mean, it's pretty unprecedented how much money and yeah. intelligence and training and all this stuff that's happening it's really uh pretty unbelievable but and and we've seen biden officials have said that it, it this isn't about 
Ukraine winning the war or beating back Russia. It's about hurting Russia. Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, he said after that first phase of the war, he said, you know, we want to see a weakened Russia. That that's one of their goals. Um, so, and then the question is for the people of Ukraine, for people that care about Ukraine, is that if the Donbass, the Luhansk and Donetsk, if and Crimea, who controls Crimea, which Russia has controlled since 2014, is who controls that worth all these bodies, all these, all this death and violence, and uh, uh, that's what people have to think about. I think. Yeah, yeah. Adam, have you been paying attention to to Ukraine, and what are your what are your thoughts based on what you see? It's um, it's equally confusing. Um, like you said, you know, every time I try to focus on Ukraine, it's unfortunate because I try to look at I try to um, look at people as not being like these pure evil monsters, right? So I try to look at Putin like he's a leader of a country rather than you know he's just some monster who just likes bombing people for no apparent reason. So. It's tough to do that and try to be logical about a guy who he can't be in his position by being a complete moron or being completely monstrous, right? So he must be doing certain things for a particular reason. He must be invading for a particular reason. Whether we agree with those reasons or not, he's doing it for some reason. And I'm trying to figure out that, that, um, that reasoning base, right? And instead, the propaganda is he's just a monster and he's just bombing Ukraine be because he's bombing Ukraine. When I look at it, it makes more sense that the more that the United States is getting involved with Ukraine, the more they're flirting with Ukraine joining NATO, Ukraine is on its border. And there's talks of, uh, it was a Finland and um, I forget the other country. Was it? Sweden. Who's it? Sweden? Sweden? Yeah. Okay, I was Sweden, thinking yeah. Sweden. I was so Finland and Sweden also joining NATO, you know, so, and also understanding that NATO was created in response to Russia um, or USSR. So I think that, yeah, I think if I was in Russia's shoes, I would be like, hey, this is a bit of an escalation. You know, imagine, I, I just think to myself, imagine if, uh, I don't know, who's our, like, let's say China, China just started uh, becoming buddies with Mexico and started building Chinese facilities all across the uh, the U.S.-Mexican border, and and saying they're going to have an alliance with China. Like, hold on a second, this is kind of uh, this is kind of concerning. Yeah. Why? <laughs> we might put you some know, missiles I, here, and, but don't worry, they're not for you. They're just uh, right. Just no, put no, them no, no, no. on the other side of the Rio Grande. Mm. Yeah. Right. So from from that strategic standpoint of all the different escalation points. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm aware of the conflict of resources and uh, going down to Syria. You know, Russian uh, Russian military was joining in there to, you know, fight against all that nonsense, um, you know, in that proxy war. So I know that there's a battle for resources within mainland Europe. And once again, this this seems more like a proxy war for resources. And the United States is in the middle of it. The thing... Well, all right, because it's a resource thing, I understand why we're in the middle of it. But the thing, if you didn't know that this was a resource thing, if you're just a apolitical person barely paying attention, why is the United States always involved in this type of stuff? What does the United States have to do with Ukraine? If, you, if Ukraine 
is, is of a high interest in mainland Europe, and you have an entire organization called the European Union that is there, wouldn't it be in the highest interest of the European Union to throw their backing behind Ukraine? Instead, it feels like we've taken the, the driver's seat in this entire conflict. We're the ones who are primarily funding the, the, the war against mm -hmm. Russia through Ukraine. So this, this feels like an American operation, uh, maybe with a little bit of backing from the, the British government. But it seems like mainland Europe or the European Union, I should say, is nearly hands off in this entire this entire situation. Meanwhile, it seems to be going against their actual interests. Their actual interest mm -hmm. is to have resources coming from Russia. They don't really want to <laughs> to, to blockade their only the very important resources coming from uh, coming from Russia. I think to myself, wouldn't it be in their best interest to try to advocate for peace? So maybe that's the reason why they're not funding the war, why they're not getting in the middle of it, because, you know, the, the, the world police of the United States is behind this and they're funding it. And it seems like a, an unstoppable uh, train at this point. Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing, kind of the split, because uh, like you said, um, a lot of EU countries, um, you know, France, Germany and Italy now, they've been calling for negotiations. Schultz in Germany, Macron in, in France and Draghi, if I said that right, in Italy. They've all been speaking with Putin since he invaded. And since Russia invaded, Biden hasn't even, you know, tried to speak with Putin. Uh, Blinken. He implied the, that we should kill him. Actually, yeah, is the yeah pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And Blinken, his, who's supposed to be his top diplomat, he hasn't gotten on the phone with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, since February 15th. I mean, how long ago is that now? You know, if they actually cared about Ukraine, if they actually wanted to put an end to, to the fighting, they would be exhausting every every avenue they could, diplomacy or, or whatever. Um, but also in the EU, um, you have Poland and the Baltic states in the east. There, they're, They've been pretty hawkish. Now, all EU countries, for the most part, have sent Ukraine some sort of weapons. But like you said, not as much as the U.S. and Britain. They're the real hawks in this. Um, you know, Boris Johnson, mm -hmm. he visited Kiev and spoke with Zelensky in early April. And reports came out that said he he told them, you know, even if you're ready to sign a deal with Putin, we're not. <laughs> you know, uh, the the U.S., U.K. and and most most of NATO, maybe not most, but the leaders of NATO, the countries that matter. I mean, it's a U.S. led alliance. So that's yeah. what really matters. But and, and like you said that, I mean, if you're European right now and you got rising gas bills and everything. They're working on a Russian oil ban, um, and that's going to just kill their economy. They're trying to do it phased out over a few years, but no matter how they do it, it's just it's going to really hurt people. And especially after all climbing out of the COVID lockdowns and, and everything we've dealt with in the past few years, it just it's just so against Europe's interest to be going along with this. So hopefully these kind of cracks in, in NATO, in the EU, kind of lead us in a more peaceful direction or a less hawkish direction. Uh, I think maybe there's some some promise there. But again, if they ban, I think the big thing, if they ban oil, they ban Russian oil. And really, if they ban Russian gas, that kind of tells me that we're not going back, you know, that it's going to be like a new iron curtain in Europe. Do you think that one of the do you guys think that one of one of the underlying issues here is Vladimir Putin does not I mean for all of his fault I so let's just start with my assertion that both sides are bad in their own ways I'm not trying to paint this as like a 
good guy, bad guy kind of thing. They're both horrible in their way, own ways. Okay, let's be done with that. Mm-hmm. Now, is it possible that that they look at Putin as a man who is against the kind of WEF world? Like, I don't want to use like New World Order kind of things, but like there is this kind of wokish stakeholder capitalism. All of the all of the the Western countries are kind of moving in this this pseudo wokish stakeholder capitalism uh, way. And Putin is explicitly anti-woke. He's, he's actually, and if you listen to what he says about us culture, he sounds like he's, you know, farther right than Ted Cruz. Uh, and like, event, like saying like, this is a problem. This is a problem. You guys are like, uh, do you think they just recognize him as just like an ideological enemy? And so this is an excuse to, to, you know, prop this guy up as this evil villain, get rid of this ideological energy enemy, and maybe, maybe hopefully get someone in power in Russia that can be on their side. Well, I I definitely think regime change in Russia has been uh, something that, you know, the neocons that run our foreign policy in the, uh, really in the Obama administration, you know, after the coup in Ukraine in 2014, and, uh, you know, Putin kind of humiliated them by taking Crimea and uh, and then again the next year when he intervened in the Syrian war, and he, when he pretty much stopped Assad from getting overthrown, I think he really infuriated uh, a lot of them. And I don't think it's so much about the ideological stuff, because if you talk about, you know, the woke, the way I look at it is that they kind of apply that when it's convenient, and they ignore it when it's not. Especially if you look at like Saudi Arabia and stuff, and even sure. Ukraine. I mean, they have the same. Ukraine is very similar to russia in that sense you know gay marriage isn't legal there that was always a big thing they went after russia for was gay rights and um and you know Zelensky, he goes to the w wef and stuff but i i think it's he's just the convenient uh puppet for now uh for them to prop up against putin and you know they'll turn they would turn on him uh, if if he became inconvenient if he started kind of going against them uh and you know it goes deeper that Putin, you know, I'm not, I don't know exactly why uh, they're so out to, they were so out to get him in the first place, but I know Hillary Clinton, you know, t- 2012, you know, the U S used to fund his opposition and, and, and meddle in Russian parliament elections. Um, and I remember in about 2012, you know, Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, spoke out in favor of protesters against Putin's party and stuff. And that was a big turning point because before that it was more about kind of, uh, a rapprochement with Russia, get re- relations back on track. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you remember that Mitt Romney, Obama debate, uh, Mitt Romney said Russia was, you know, our biggest threat and Obama laughed at him, you know, yep. who was running the democratic uh, candidate for president laughed about Russia being a threat. And that wasn't that long ago. Um, so it is yeah. kind of amazing mm-hmm. how things changed in in that sense. It feels like cold war inertia, except for there was this period post cold war where, like you said, Russia wasn't considered a threat. Um, so it's it's hard to parse out. I mean, one thing I think that's difficult for me, at least, is just I've read a little bit about Russian culture and history with respect to some of this stuff. And it's hard to imagine, like, uh, first of all, they're, they're, they are really good. Someone in chat mentioned this. They're really good at propaganda. They're really good at just, like, saying whatever they know the other side, like, whatever the West needs to hear to, like they're really they're really good at that but they're also come from a culture of 
invasion. Like it's hard, it's hard to as an American to imagine, but Moscow has been invaded over and over and over and over again in history uh, from the West. Um, and so, you know, they they have a very protectionist <laughs> policy, and they're very pro strongman. They very they very into like central authority, and there needs to be a, one strong person to protect Russia. And it's just a it's culturally very very different. So sometimes it's just hard to parse out what's going on in the heads of not only Putin but even the, his supporters in Russia. Because I don't think he's I don't think he's a dictator in the sense that no one likes him. Certainly, there's part of the population that doesn't and we'll never really know because I don't think we have transparency there. But I don't think he's like massively unpopular. Do you? Uh, I mean, I think he's very popular. Uh, I mean, you know, of course, people will question these numbers, but uh, his approval rating before the invasion was about 60 percent. And after the invasion and the U.S. sanctions, it it shot up to uh, over 80 percent. And this is when Biden's went down to like I forgot how low how low it went at one point, but it was pretty low. It was funny because the article I read about it, uh, it was I think it was Newsweek. It, it was talking about how Putin's approval rating was so high. They said, "Oh, yep. well, his approval rating in America is really low. P- Americans don't like him. Like that mattered." <laughs> so it was just comparing <laughs> Putin and Biden. But, that's um, just that's pretty stupid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I definitely, I think you know, and 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 this goes to. We have, you know, history shows us we have a long, we have decades of sanctions, campaigns, economic pressure, and and kind of proxy war. Whenever we do that to a country, you know, the people rally around the government because nobody wants a foreign, uh, you know, a foreign power to intervene in, in their country or try to imagine if Russia was trying to destroy our economy, if they had the power to do it and we're yep. bragging about it like Biden has been about uh you know, at first he bragged about how the ruble crashed, but that's that's shot back up. Um, and, you know, I just think it's just such a foolish short sighted policy. Like, I just don't understand how they can't see that, how the sanctions and stuff isn't just going to make Putin kind of stronger domestically. And, it, and and the war obviously gives him the power to crack down more. And they've been passing all these draconian laws uh, to crack down on, you know, people that are against the war. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's. You know, it's it's a shame because the Western pressure, like you talked about with Russia, they've always been invaded. And when you're messing around on their border, not just on their border, but in in an area of the world that was historically Russian for a long time, Crimea and eastern Ukraine. And, you know, over and over, they'll tell you it's a red line. It's a red line. Uh, um, I mean, the thing that, you know, you could say how bad I mean, war is the worst thing. That's why I write for antiwar.com. That's why I do what I do. It's the worst thing that could happen pretty much, I think. But, you know, this war, the lesson for us, for the Americans, for the West, really, is that it didn't have to happen. It could have been prevented a million times by yep. by just honest negotiation or just kind of letting Russia not have Ukraine, but have influence in Ukraine and just respecting Russia, which, uh, you know, nobody in Washington wants to do, I guess. Right. We could have called, if, yeah. if Putin really cared about NATO, we could have easily said, fine, we promised to never... It could have at least tried. You yeah, know, like the, sure. the negotiations leading up to the invasion, that was, they they gave this big documents of, of what, you know, Russia's kind of security proposals and demands. And the main thing was promise us Ukraine will never join NATO. Right. And they, they didn't do it. And you think, <laughs> okay, maybe it wouldn't have worked, but if you want to prevent a war, why not do it when they're not joining NATO anyway? 
Biden said it himself. He said they're not joining for at least 10 right. years or so. So it could have been contingent, too. They're not going to join NATO unless you invade them. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, then we, we, when we revoke that, like, okay, mm-hmm. like, it's, you know. Yeah. Actually, can I, um, if I, if you don't mind, I want to go back to before what you were saying, like, um, Zelensky going to the WEF and stuff like that. Um, and, and woke, you know, woke, uh, corporate wokeism and stuff like that. I don't really, I think for people who are in power, at that level, I don't really think they're that ideological. Um, yeah. I think they are very matter of fact and, and business like. Um, they have their particular agenda. Like you said, if it if it works to to use it, then they'll they'll use it. Um, you know, it's like saying we need to go to Afghanistan because we need to give uh, women studies there be- and give equal tr- treatment to women, you know, it has nothing to do with the opium they have there, <laughs> you know? Right. So it's, it's, um, it's morality when it's convenient because we know, you know, in, in our recent history, we're cool with strong men as long as they play ball with us. But as soon as they, you know, start doing their own thing, you know, look at Saddam Hussein, we had no problem yeah. with them for quite a while until he wanted to start doing his own thing and stop playing ball. Then all of a sudden he was a terrible human being. We need to take him out. Um, so we th- we have a bunch of people who are like that throughout uh, throughout our history uh, that we help to set up, and uh, we'll knock them down if they step out of line. So I don't think it's really ideological. I think it's just objective oriented. The objective is to obtain resources, keep profits going, um, and especially when it comes to oil and gas, uh, it's to dominate the market. Um, that's what Syria was ultimately about. That's why Russia intervened because they were going to intrude on their, on their cash cow of mainland Europe. And so they didn't want any of that. So I, I think all of this ultimately comes down to resources. Ideology is just convenience for them. I mean, I think that makes sense to me on some level. I, when I think of the WEF and and the Davos crowd and those elitists, I I think of their ultimate objective is basically just power. Um, yeah. You could say money as well, but like it's basically just power. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I view the ideology as their current uh, strategy for po- obtaining power. Right. So, like, if you look at, for example, um, Klaus Schwab's has you know he explicitly said, well. Um, we tried with climate change and that didn't work, but COVID presents an opportunity, right? So like, like, okay, <laughs> this is the, the new issue is like, now it's the opportunity to, to get what we want and to, to push for stakeholder capitalism and all, and all this kind of stuff and the great reset. So, you know, I, I guess when I, I don't know that they are, when I say put Putin is pushing back, I don't know. It's necessarily like they have an ideological, uh, misalignment on that in that way just that he sees their strategy and he's poking at their strategy that they're trying to like hey we were going to take over using this strategy and he's like no you're not i'm going to poke people i'm going to poke you at that strategy i'm going to i'm going to reveal that strategy and talk about it and you know i don't think he has enough power to really make a big change but he that it does earn him sympathy from people in the west who hear him talk about uh some of this this ideology stuff that is being used Granted, it's only being used for a, a, the purpose of obtaining power, but it is it is being used as a strategy, right? Yeah, yeah, and there's there's a level of weaponizing empathy as well um, mm-hmm. that happens, you know, even from the the Russian standpoint. Um, 
you know, saying, oh, well, you know, we feel threatened. Oh, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. I mean, in some ways, it in some ways, it strategically makes sense to be pissed off that your adversaries are seemingly getting closer and closer to your borders. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Russia does seem to be occasionally playing victim to the West, um, you know, whenever it, it suits them. But I think just about everybody plays victim uh, <laughs> when it's <laughs> when it's necessary. Um, it's interesting because there are times that we see countries as like these entities and there's times that we see countries as almost like emotional uh, lands, you know, where they have emotions and, 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 uh, and we're supposed to bleed our hearts for the land itself. But other times it's mm. just a, it's just a place, you know? So it's, it's, you know, to me, it's it's more of the propaganda and more of like the manipulation um, to get people to side one way or the other. Um, you know, same thing. I think w- what's happening in Ukraine, they've they've made this into a humanitarian situation, which in some ways it is. War ultimately turns into a humanitarian situation. But like you guys were saying, I think much of this is preventable, right? So. They, they make our hearts bleed for the people who are caught in the crossfire of war by saying the only way to, to make this work out is we just give them billions of dollars more money so they can get their homeland back, right? And, <laughs> and so we, we, we fall for it. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the reality, like, like Dave was saying, it's looking like Ukraine's not going to be able to beat Russia. I, to be honest with you, I never thought Ukraine could withstand Russia unless uh, we actively or whether it's the United States or some other country, actively started fighting alongside Ukraine, not just providing arms. So, yep. I don't know. Yeah. yeah so, Adam... Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Ahead, I was just going to say about appealing to emotion. I mean, you know, you really see, like, the propaganda campaigns turn up like that when Russia invaded. I mean, it was just all about appealing to emotion um, and the media just prints everything that the Ukrainian government, every claim they make uh, to make Russia look like the bad guy. And one, one thing that I thought was really interesting was that they presented this as like, no country's ever invaded another country since World <laughs> War II. You know, Putin's, Putin's Hitler, the U.S. has never done anything like this. And then it was a myth that, uh, did you see that George, uh, George W. Bush's uh, little slip up, I think, yes. last week? Yeah. So, yeah, he said it's like, you know, one man launched an unjustified, brutal invasion of, of Iraq. Uh, I mean, Ukraine. And he's like, uh, in Iraq, too. I think yeah, that, he, that the weird thing is he said in Iraq, too. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. Did you just own that? I think, yeah, I, think I think he's got a guilty conscience. But and, and I was just like, I thought that that's just such a revealing moment. It's like we try to, yep. you know, you had Condoleezza Rice on TV, who was in the Bush administration when they invaded Iraq, uh, saying, oh, it's it's, you know, I forget exactly what she said. I think she called it a war crime invading a country uh, for no reason. And it's like, okay, so then what was, what did you do in the Bush administration? Um, So hopefully more people are starting to see that. I think there are a lot of cracks in the narrative and uh, you know, it was pretty astonishing to see how many people went along with, you know, Ukraine, like, Oh, oh, I have to support Ukraine. (laughs) Okay. Right. Yeah. I have to change my emoji from a needle to a Ukrainian flag. I got it. That's yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but forget, but not the Yemeni flag. We don't talk about that. No. Um, yeah. All right. So, look, Adam. Uh, let's let's ask you. What's the most important mainstream 
uh, story that we've been mis- misled by. That uh, was poorly worded, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, actually, uh, I lost it and it came right back to me. When Biden said that we would actively defend Taiwan, <laughs> I thought that was I thought that was uh, very revealing and hilarious how they tried to walk it back. Like he's just the senile patient who went off the talking points. Um, but I think that's that's incredibly important that he did say that. And I think it's very, I, th- I would think strategically from a, from a world standpoint, it makes him look weak. Even if he misspoke, let's say he misspoke, it makes yep. him look weak and it shows his position as not actually going to intervene when it comes to Taiwan. And so it's, it's like unnecessarily showing his hand because he answered that question in a particular way and then he walked it back and so I've been saying, if China invades Taiwan, we're not doing shit about it, to be honest with you. Right. Um, I think we, we've, we've allowed China to grow to the size that they are by providing all these resources for them. Uh, uh, we've allowed them to steal our intellectual property. Uh, we've voluntarily given our intellectual property to them by allowing them to build our stuff and Oh, you know, they just have our blueprints to all different types of incredibly important um, parts of our economy. Uh, we can look at medical ne- uh, necessities; they produce it. We can look at all different types of stuff. If China cut, if China was to cut us off, we would be stuck for quite a quite a while. We would be screwed. Um, and so, I think that they know that. Uh, I, I think that China knows that. I'm well aware that the government understands that. But even more so, I think members of our government actually like the position that we're in. They like the Chinese money. And so they have, I don't understand the interests of intervening with China because they've been personally making money off of China. They've been subservient to China. Um, So they're used to being in that position. I think for many within the federal government, they don't really care about American interests. They've, they've kind of been about what's their particular interest. Uh, if this was about American interests, we'd be doing something completely different. Uh, we wouldn't be so subservient to China. Um, I'm not one to be like, we need to be 100% isolationists and we have to produce everything here. But my God, when, oh man, I can't remember. I remember during COVID, they were saying like China produces like 50% of our medical supplies or something, something to that nature. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking yeah. like, that's not good. <laughs> like if they cut us off, yeah. we're fucked. Um, and I don't think any country should be in that position uh, where they have to be so reliant on a semi-adversarial um, country like China is. Uh, so that's, that's the- Let me play devil's advocate though. If that if that semi reliance prevents war between the two countries, maybe that's a good mutual dependency yeah, to have. That's how I feel about China, because there there's a lot of hawks, you know, right now. So we're talking about Russia. It's all about Russia in the news right now. But uh, for the Biden administration, for mm-hmm. the Pentagon, uh, for a lot of the agencies, the FBI, CIA, they're all saying that China is the top priority. And what you said about Congress making a lot of money off China, which is very true. And uh, they have been for years. There's also a big shift that's happened, I think, in the past really year, two years, three years, kind of halfway through the Trump administration. 
One thing that was pretty revealing was that earlier this year, Congress voted unanimously, except for Thomas Massey in Kentucky, the only honest person in Congress right now, I think, <laughs> maybe Rand Paul, but uh, he, he voted against it. And it was a bill banning all uh, imports from Xinjiang, from the China's Xinjiang province. Um, so you can't source materials from there anymore. And this was lobbied against by Nike, Coca-Cola, all these huge American corporations that are lining the pockets mm -hmm. of Congress, really lobbied against it. But they all voted for it, except for Massey, because he's a he has a pretty principled view of of what the government should say about where where we who we trade with. You know, so, yeah, I think our relationship with China, I, you know, we probably shouldn't be so interdependent. I think we should definitely diversify our supply lines. But, yes. you know, with uh, there, there's also been a slow U.S. military buildup in the South China Sea that st started really under Obama. Slowly, Trump ramped it up and Biden's ramping it up even more, which a lot of people don't really uh, know about um, the amount of aircraft carriers and ships and that are, we're sending into the South China Sea, into the Taiwan Strait. And we probably, you know, when it comes to Taiwan, I mean, my I think that if the U.S. starts to say that they'll defend Taiwan, and starts to support them more, I think we'll see a similar situation like Ukraine. I think 10, you know, it's not going to be soon because of the economic stuff, but I think maybe a decade from now, it'll make more war like more likely. And Chinese officials are, are saying this now they've kind of changed their tune. They used to, um, you know, there's always the hawks in the media that they want us to see, but the, their diplomats, ambassadors and stuff in the, just in the past few years, as we've been supporting Taiwan more kind of these, uh, these kind of, unprecedented like visits that might not seem that significant. Like they send high level U S officials to Taiwan now that they didn't since 1979 when they broke diplomatic relations. So we're seeing all that and that's tough. That really pisses China off. I, I think more than the U S warships sailing around there. Um, so it's really sensitive, you know, it's their red line. And I think, you know, I, I understand there's a lot of sentiment and a lot of people don't like China in America, but you really have to weigh, you know, what is is it worth risking the world to to, to kind of uh, go down this path with China because they they're they don't have as many nukes as Russia but a war between the U.S. and China could end you know humanity as we know it and uh, I think we just have mm. to take a people have to keep that in mind. No, I, and I completely understand that. I think for me, for me, it's not even necessarily about um, yes, we have to defend Taiwan or not. For me, it's about it's always about the threat. Right. Mm. And so I can I can perfectly see China saying, you know, the U.S. is playing games right now. So it seems like war is inevitable. So we're going to do whatever we have to do resource wise, uh, military wise to build ourselves up for the next five to 10 years for that moment when it comes and we have to cut off ties with the United States because China is relying on us to some degree as well. So it's yeah. not just one sided. Um, I could completely see that happening. The, the unfortunate thing about a regime like, like China, where it's, it's very top heavy, is that they don't really care about the after effects for the, the people within it, right? It's just a means to an end. As long as the state survives, that's all they really care about. So if in pursuit of domination, a million people die, then a million people die. It's a country of a billion, right? I, I, that's the perspective that I get, that they're kind of callous in that way. Maybe not completely callous, like like Mao or something like that. But 
I could see them if they if it came down to it, if they felt that this is the moment to respond. Mm. And it means sacrificing some of their citizens, not necessarily because they're involved in a war, but because um, the war resulted in, in, you know, embargoes or something of that nature where resources were cut off and people starved. You see what's going on in uh, was it, is it Shanghai? Um, the lockdowns. Are being, yeah, oh, the, the lockdowns. lockdowns. Yeah, I think yeah. Shanghai, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and how, how kind of cold and callous they are in that situation. Um, mm-hmm. Imagine if there was a there was an embargo, there were, there were supplies actually being cut off and it resulted in a million people dying because of it. As long as the state is in power and state is relatively in yeah. control, I think they wouldn't really care. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I mean, the U.S. Uh, knows a lot about embargoes and blockading countries and killing people that way. Yeah. But uh, I would say with China and Taiwan, it, it's good to keep in mind that you know, they're very, their economies are very intertwined too. I mean, there's a massive amounts of trade. I don't have the figures off the top of my head between Taiwan and mainland China and also travel. I mean, millions of people travel back and forth each year. So right now it's, it's not in China's interest. Um, if you think about them, even in that way as a state that, that, you know, cares about the survival of the state, uh, you know, a hot war in Taiwan is, it'll be, it would be a disaster It would to for them to invade Taiwan. It, it would be one of the biggest, it, it would be the, Biggest amphibious invasion in in like in modern military history. I mean, it would make the invasion of D Day look like like nothing. It would be like ten times <laughs> bigger than that. So they don't want to do that. But again, it's a red line. And if they think that's the way everything's going, and right now from their view, I, I think they do because you see, uh, um, you know, the U.S. is signing all these new military alliances in the region. They just signed that deal with Australia. They're going to get nuclear-powered submarines. And where are those nuclear-powered submarines? Where are they meant to go? They're meant to go near China's coast. They're meant to go in the Taiwan Strait. Um, and they are also mm-hmm. the Quad, which is India, Japan, Australia, and the U.S. Biden's really boosting them. That was a thing Trump kind of revived. It's like an informal alliance. But the Hawks in Washington, they want it to be an Asian NATO uh, and they're drawing a lot of comparisons. You know, I kind of get annoyed at all the parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan. They're saying, oh, Putin invaded Ukraine. China's going to go into Taiwan next. But, you know, because it is so different because it's an amphibious invasion and all that. But, you know, I do think that there are parallels with NATO expansion and 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 just this, you know, this kind of encirclement of these countries. Um, you know, you're going to get a reaction. I just I want to throw a couple things out about China. Just I, I view Taiwan as, you know, the story in the Bible where uh, two women come to King Solomon and they have a baby and they're like they're both claiming they own the baby and King Solomon says like well, why don't you just cut it in half uh, and you can each take half and the real mother is like no you can have it right that's how he figures out who the real mm. mother is I've I view <laughs> Taiwan like a war in Taiwan is cutting the baby in half like. 90% something like 90% of of most chips for the world are made in Taiwan as you mentioned Dave they've got a rich trading uh relationship with China they also have a rich trading relationship with the west you can't you can't blow up the world's only foundry basically you can't mm. like, like it's not the only foundry but you can't you can't do that and not it's like cutting off your nose to spite your face like it's not it's not going to help China to get in a hot war with Taiwan. It will massively hurt them. Um, but the other thing I, I want to just let, you know, people should understand that 
Xi Jinping is not doing well right now. When when you look at like the Shanghai lockdown, the other members of the CCP are really angry at him. He's he may not last the year as the chairman, like because he has adopted this pig-headed zero COVID policy. And the you know, China's not a democratic country, but they are a they're kind of like technocrats in the sense that they are they're managing a tax farm. They don't care about individual rights or anything, but they're they're managing a tax farm and mismanagement of Shanghai hurts the tax revenue and hurts the tax farm and hurts the animals. And like they don't like that. So they, they're they're not happy with, with what Xi Jinping's doing. The other thing you have to wonder about with China is they have a dearth of young men. Um or sorry, they have an excess of young men, uh, mm-hmm. not a dearth. They have uh, they have too many men, partly because of the one-child policy. People would kill the uh, fetus if it was a female. Um, so they actually do have. So I'm just I'm just throwing out all these factors. Like they do have men that are kind of expendable, right? <laughs> like, hey, yeah. if if we had a, if we had to go kill a hundred or uh, you know a million uh, Chinese men, meh, you know maybe that's okay. But also they have. Roughly a trillion dollars of the U.S. the Treasury debt, right? They're one of the largest debt holders. So it's weird. I agree with Adam when he's like, "We give them our intellectual property and blah blah blah," and they've been like, it, they've been taking intellectual property in a way that we seem to be willing to look the other way and not do. The flip side is all we've been giving them is IOUs, which are basically worthless, and they're the ones like they're one of the few countries propping up the dollar by buying our stupid Treasury debt, and. The moment, like if China and not that they're friends with Japan, but like those are the two largest foreign uh, debt holders. If they get together and, and say like, you know what, screw this, we're going to dump the dollar. Or if if you know, as she is, Xi Jinping's made more moves towards Putin. If they're like, screw it, we're going to abandon the petrodollar. That that has that costs us a lot. That's uh, we're not going to bother invading Taiwan. I mean, they could destroy our economy without a hot war, I guess is my point. If they really want to do something to mm-hmm. us, I think they can. Um, and it used to be true, you know, it used to be true that the Chinese were copycats. They would take our intellectual property and go copy it and produce things. That's not totally true anymore. They've, like, their economy has grown. They have a thriving middle class, may have many, many, educated they probably have more educated engineers than the rest of the world combined i'm not sure about that exactly but like a, just a slew of, of of engineers and they are starting to invent their own things and have their own ecosystem and like yeah it was true when they went from when they were transitioning from third world country to where they are now they basically the best they could do is is copy shit and make it cheaply but that's not really true anymore so i think china is kind of emerging on the world stage as a different country than we've thought about it in the past. And I'm partly scared about <laughs> what they will do. Uh, but I'm also scared that their biggest export is, is ideology. I think a lot of the, we talked to the WF earlier on. I think a lot of these globalist elites look at what China does from a management of the tax farm and say, that's great. These people have like constant surveillance. They have basically no rights. But they're producing, and and the government's taxing them. And they're and look, the, there's this little committee that's in charge of the whole country. I love this model. Like, how do we get that going on in Europe? I mean, I'm pretty sure that's the mindset. I don't know. That was just a long diatribe, but yeah. Well, I think <laughs> what you said about the how uh, China um, 
has a big middle class and how they're producing a lot now. Uh, I think I think that's a big part of the reason why we're seeing the shift, why the American corporations and and the people in Congress are shifting away from supporting China completely is because they're really starting to compete now uh, with their mm-hmm. you know technological prowess and stuff, um, and we're seeing you know uh, a lot of. Uh, you know, American corporations, I think, are threatened. And even I, to, to get on the intellectual property thing, I, I think that's all kind of blown out of proportion. Um, because from, you know, how I understand it, intellectual property, you know, trade secrets, it's generally something that you protect because you assume is going to be stolen. And I think that if you're a corporation and you're doing business in China or you're inviting a Chinese company to do business in America. I think that's your risk. And uh, I think David Stockman put it like Trump's policies uh, of the tariff war is basically turning the U.S. government into a patent lawyer for, for these corporations. And, uh, you know, because it's just like one of the major talking points about why China is such a threat. I, I just don't think that they are. And I think that we could just kind of get along with them. And, and you know, there's definitely things that they do to influence uh, our culture that, you know, we should, could push against and stuff. But I just, I just don't think that we have to go down this, uh, this path with China. And I know it's not a, uh, really popular view <laughs> these days. Well, I think we could have easily had some kind of reciprocity, but I think you're right. The companies, companies put themselves, I, I think when they're complaining about it, what happens is they get a business opportunity mm. and, it's like, well, you're going to lose. We know you're going to lose your intellectual property, but do you want to make the money? And they like yeah. they they do that, and then complain that they lost their intellectual property. It's like, well, you kind of knew yeah. when you said yes, I would like Shenzhen to manufacture my widget. You kind of knew that your widget technology was going to be now yeah. in China's hands, right? I mean, yeah, I've heard stories. I forget somebody I knew that uh, lived in China for a little while. Um, he had a friend that moved there and he had a business. I forget exactly what it was. It was some kind of uh, food truck thing and he made something really good. And then slowly, like there was another food truck, like they, they basically the government basically took his idea and then made his, his operation, you know, not legal. And then he just went back to America, but, and that, you know, that's not right. That's, like that's the story of Uber kind of. In yeah. China, yeah. Right. Like, um, yeah, so. that's true. Yeah, it's a story of a lot of things. And, and, you know, that's a risk. And it's not right, but it's not uh, one thing that we shouldn't do, a trap that we shouldn't fall into is for our government is to become more protectionist and more like the Chinese government. I think right. uh, that's another kind of Trump thing um, that that we risk falling into when you wanted to ban TikTok and all that. Uh, yes. That was a whole saga, but I guess that didn't happen. And WeChat, you know, that would have been pretty big uh, if he did that. Um so I'm gonna I'm gonna say this out loud because you brought up WeChat and I haven't mm-hmm. said it in a while. So I want to tell people, if you are trying to protect your communication from the U.S. government, WeChat is an excellent tool oh, because yeah? China will see everything you're doing, but they definitely don't want the U.S. government to see what's <laughs> going on in WeChat. So you need to leverage one superpower against the other. If your threat yeah. is the Chinese government, don't use WeChat. Uh, but if it's yeah. the U.S. government, WeChat's a fine app to be used. That was always my point too about TikTok and the, the and the Huawei phones. That you know they're like, oh, yes. they're filled with Chinese spyware. I'm like, well, my phone's filled with American spyware, and I don't I don't live in China, so I'd rather have the Chinese. Right, I'd rather have China phone. spying on me because they don't give a crap what I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean that's just you know what I think about China, and but I just I, I think you know my opinion and 
the way things are going. Like right now, the best, kind of the most exciting political movement, I think, is like the populist right, kind of the America first guys, because they're great on Russia, Ukraine. They're great on the Middle East wars now, but they're all pretty hawkish on China. And, And I just don't see it kind of getting any better because on the other side uh you know there's still definitely the, the the ones that have their interests in in making lots of money from china but you're starting to see uh kind of the same view from pretty moderate democrats um there's this one lady uh, elaine luria she's a house representative in virginia and she wants to give biden war powers for taiwan she just wants them to be able to go to war with china if they ever invade taiwan she's a democrat and that's <laughs> terrifying to me so yes. Especially, well, yeah, anyone have that power, Biden especially. I know yeah. you've got to go, uh, Dave, but before you run, I was shocked this weekend by one thing that happened. Mm. I had promised some friends of mine. This, I'm a guy who was involved in the Libertarian Party like a long time ago, just a little bit. I, w- I voted for Wyoming in the Free State Project a long time ago, and they voted for New Hampshire, so I didn't move or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And I've been so super disappointed in the Libertarian Party. I mean, they've been putting people out like Joe Jorgensen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Harry Browns have died off and whatever. They they've been crap for a long time. And I said to my friend, if the Mises Caucus takes over, I will re-engage with the Libertarian Party. They, they did. The yeah. Mises Caucus took over <laughs> this weekend. I had no idea they were that close to taking over. Yeah. So I'm gonna have to be a libertarian now. Yeah, I just I just joined today. Cause it was kind of the same thing. I, I didn't think that they would be able to, to, to do it like this quick. And I texted Scott, Scott Horton, who's very involved in that. And I said, now that you guys did all the hard work, I guess I'll, I'll join. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> but, my, I'm going to ride their coattails. Yeah. I was never involved. I've never really been involved in any political party, but, um, and, but it was exciting to see. I watched some of the speeches. I mean, Dave Smith is awesome. I think. And Ron Paul was there and like, it just looked all, like really cool and exciting. So I figured, you know, I'll, I'll check it out now. Um, yeah. But what can yeah. it, and we'll see what it can do because that's another thing. I, I, I don't think the Libertarian Party, like, what could they really do in this country? But they got if a they lot get of Dave Smith on stage with two other presidential candidates. That is yeah. a win. And the point that uh, I think his name is Michael Heiss, he's the head of the Mises Caucus, that he made, um, which was a great point, is that. You know, Dave Smith's never going to get any kind of mainstream approval like Joe Jorgensen did. I guess she, I don't even know if they acknowledge her really, but she would be able to get on CNN and stuff, I bet. Same thing with Gary Johnson. Dave Smith, you know, there's, if you ever watch his like comedy podcast, there's plenty of clips they could pull from there. But I said, you know, he's a regular guest on Joe Rogan. It's like that's bigger than any of these shows. They have that whole media sphere. They can dominate yeah. that. And I think that's that's, you know, that's pretty significant. So it'll be exciting. So hopefully, I mean, I think the thing now is that the people that want to see Dave Smith, I guess that's, I don't know how any of this stuff works, but I got, I should ask them is to get him nominated is kind of like the next big thing they have to do. Yeah, I guess. Cause yeah, yeah I don't, but, I don't know how it works either. Um, I do despise politics. Someone in chat just said, thanks for completely negating my whole conversation with you on your thoughts last week. I had a whole conversation <laughs> where I was like, I'm not focused on politics. I'm still not focused on politics. I'm still, yeah focused on philosophy and culture and yeah i've never been psychology involved in politics but so anyway i gotta run and you guys yeah thank you uh, dave how can people follow you just on twitter at decamp dave and then if you want to read uh i write news articles every day for antiwar.com just about every day 
Uh, so check that out. You can sign up to our mailing list and we send it out every day. You'll get some news. Uh, so yeah. And, uh, Adam Carter, it was good to meet you guys. Good to meet you, man. Thanks for coming. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Take care. All right, Adam, you're on the hot seat now. I'm going to ask you, uh, what news story should we be paying attention to that isn't being noticed? Or what do you want to talk? I, there's one other thing I do what definitely want to talk to you about, but I'll ask you that question first. Is there a news story you think we should be paying attention to that we're not? Um, well, that, that, that was the um, the gaffe from Joe Biden. I thought that was that was a oh that was that one. Yeah, that, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, the story that they talked about seemed like for a day, and they just moved on from it. But I thought that was kind of significant. Well, I, there's definitely another story I want to talk to you about, and that is the Uvalde shooting, because you wrote an article um, about fatherlessness. Maybe Can you just walk us through what your thoughts on that whole thing is, and maybe we'll get, a, get into a little discussion about it? Sure. So, um, you know, the article obviously is, is somewhat inspired because of what happened in, the, in Uvalde, but... I wanted to talk about just in general the uh, the the actions of mass shooters. Um, one of the really important points that I wanted to talk about is that for mass shooters, in my belief, they're more suicidal than homicidal. And to get to that point of being suicidal is a is a point of hopelessness. It's a it's a detrimental way of seeing your life as being valueless. Right. Because like you, you, we were talking about earlier, he was in a shootout with the police for, you know, 12 minutes outside the school. He no longer cared whether he lived or died. Right. That's that's completely reckless behavior. Someone who is emotionally um, settled, happy, filled with life, hopeful, <laughs> doesn't get into shootouts with cops. Right. You know, the people with purpose, people with um who believe in themselves with confidence and, and, and the list goes on. Um, they don't engage in reckless behavior. They don't engage like their life doesn't matter. And so what you see, whether it's mass shootings like this or gang shootings and gang violence, um, you know, where they know that they're going against adversaries who also shoot back and they don't care if they die. And death is, familiar around them where people are dying at young ages and they know the behavior that they're engaged in is dangerous, yet they still don't care. This is a suicidal mindset. Um, you know, I kind of talk about it a little bit or at least articulate it a little bit in, in the, my book, but the idea of engaging in this way is detrimental to anybody. Um, you know, it is a hopeless way of, of living your life, constantly putting your life at risk, doing dangerous behavior with no real reward at the end of it. You know, it's it's very different than, um, let's say, joining the military and getting involved in a war that you believe is just, right? Men are willing to put their lives at risk to fight in a conflict that they believe will help people, that will save a country uh, or to take down evil. They're willing to risk their lives for these particular things. That's not suicidal, right? That's something completely right. different. Um, so I just, before someone makes that equation, I just wanted to clarify. Um, so the reason I, I bring up fatherlessness in this particular scenario, 
for one, he didn't live with his father. And two, because of, I think, his mother's health situation, um, or at least that was the excuse, his mother's health situation, um, he had no contact with his father, so basically for at least two years. Um, and by accounts, that was extremely detrimental to his mental health, you know, being isolated, being locked down, and not having any contact with his father, which, I don't know, from the sounds of it, sounds like even his relationship with his father was hit and miss. Um, so I, I wanted to talk about the impacts of fathers and not having that father figure and what the role of a father is supposed to be. Because if, if more fathers are involved in the child's lives and points them in a particular direction and gives them hope and reassures them, um, helps build their confidence, like, no kid who feels that particular way would dare risk their life or think about killing themselves or be suicidal because of something like that. Um, you know, we all have bad days and, and, and there might be bad moments, no matter how you have the greatest father in the world, you, you have those things, but carrying out with it is a completely different story. Engaging in completely reckless behavior. Uh, that that's a, that's a, that's not a momentary depression kind of thing. That's usually um, something that's been going on for quite a while of you contemplating it and you coming to that realization that you no longer care. Um, so I think it's, I think it's incredibly important to, to talk about the role of fathers and how it impacts kids. Um, and, and one last thing, statistically, mass shooters are usually come from broken homes. So they usually come from homes where they're disconnected from their fathers. And much in the same way, suicide bombers are the same same people um, in other countries. So this is not even an American thing. This is a human thing. There's, there's an incredible importance, especially for men uh, who are looking for influence, who are looking for purpose um, and, and guidance coming from their parental figure, coming from their father figure. Um, and you can fill in the gaps. You know, you know, some people have stepfathers and so on and so forth. Um, but most of the time, you know, that that parental figure is someone to help guide their kids in life and missing it leaves them lost. Now, isn't there a difference though, between being suicidal and like, we've all been depressed and, and maybe even many people yeah. have thoughts of suicide sometimes in their lives. And that's, I don't, I actually think that's quite normal to contemplate. It's not normal to do it, but um, sure. there's something very different than, from that, and I'm going to go kill fourth graders on my way out, right? That's a, uh, there's something else, well, that's the, right? That's the second part to it. So the, you know, there is the suicidal aspect to it, but the, the other part is, you know, how I interpret it is invisibility, right? Um, you know, I, I don't know about necessarily this one. I don't know. I don't know too much about the backstory, but was he, was he getting into a, a firefight and he just happened to end up at the school or was his intentions to go to the school in the first place? I think the problem with this one from what I can tell so far is that we don't know much about his motivation, but we do know he was intending to do something because he did. Um, I don't know if he was intending to do a school shooting, but he was intending to be in some sort of blue suicide, right? Like he did. He did text someone about his guns and said something's going to happen. You know, I, I don't know. Okay. You know, I don't know what the it, it seems like he was intending for this. I mean, 
you know, e- even if you get if you get in a firefight because you want to, let's say you're mad at cops for some reason and you want to go kill yourself in a blue suicide and shoot at cops, it seems like a, a weird decision in the middle of it to decide, I guess I'll just go into the school next door and kill a bunch of innocent kids first. Like, that seems, yeah, it seems intentional. Like, it's not, it's not like a whimsical decision, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I was just trying to think like, uh, I'm, you know, you're right. That sounds kind of illogical. I was just thinking like, if he was on his way somewhere else and it just turned into him getting into a firefight and he ended up outside the school. Um, but let's just say for, for this situation, that was his intention in the first place was to go there. Um, or even if it was to, to sh- because it sounds like he wanted to hurt other people, no, no matter where yes. it was going to be. So yeah. I think that is the intent, uh, att- excuse me, I can't even speak, attention aspect of it, um, especially if you feel invisible, right? So I kind of think about the Columbine shootings, right? They, from what I remember, I remember they wanted to make a big spectacle of it. They wanted to make it a show. It almost is what it kind of felt like. And they were, you know, from reports, they were bullied. They were made to feel less than, they were made to feel invisible. And the way I interpret it is that they wanted this to be the moment where they were finally heard and they were finally seen. And so they were doing something in a most uh, outlandish way that um, that will finally get people's attention. Um, so I... That's kind of how I interpret it from like so a, let, a let me Let me just standpoint. pause for a second because I'm, I'm processing this as you're saying it. But so if I think of like, I think Adam Lonzo was the, and someone, and was he, he was, yeah. no, was that the Sandy Hook dude? Which one was the, I don't remember. That was Sandy Hook. Oh, I'm thinking of the Columbine. Anyway, the Columbine shooters oh. um, seem to me to be, uh, they're shooting their peers, right? So if they're bullied and angry and just kind of like suicidal, but also just angry at their peers, like you can imagine them feeling um, ostracized by their peer group and bullied or whatever. Their peer group is a, a not a moral target, but it's a it's a target that you understand. I'm like, okay, I understand that's that that's the target. They're going to go shoot the kids that bullied them or whatever, right? In, in general, and they're kind of lumping the kids right, in. Right. But when you look at like Sandy Hook or when you look at uh, Uvalde, this is killing kids who have they, no relation to you. That's not they didn't. First of all, they're much smaller. They're not your peers, um, and it's almost like there's almost something sadistic about it because they're like almost definitionally innocent people. Like there's no, when, when you, the younger you get, the more just definitional, definitionally innocent you are, right? Like, you know, if you go, you go kill a 50 year old, you could imagine, well, maybe he did some bad things and I'm going to rationalize it. Cause blah, 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 blah. Right. It's still bad. Yeah. You kill a five year old or an eight year old. It's like, there's that, that kid said the, the kid is, you know, that you're doing, you know, that it's innocent. You can't justify it. I, I don't know. I, it seems like there's some sort of sadism at, at work here in addition. Like, I don't know if this kid tortured animals or anything, or if there's any sadistic past. I know we've seen that in the past for, I think the Parkland shooter had a history of that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. So it, it does seem like something more than suicide and even more than just anger at peers. There's like a, 
there's a level of horrific sadism that I can't connect with even intellectually. That's why, that's why I kind of use the word show, you know, like you said, there's no connection unless there's a connection that we're not aware of, you know, to the school, like something happened with him. Maybe he attended the school. I don't know, but there's no connection other than that. Those kids didn't do anything to him. And that's why I kind of feel like <clears throat> it's much of a show to cause an overwhelming reaction to people because you're, uh, you're killing the most innocent in our society. Um, you know, I kind of feel like it's, it's much in the same way, like if a suicide bomber was to, uh, let's say, go into, I'm trying to think of like a, a good equivalent. I, I guess that's the thing, because even suicide bombers, like this is a, this is a, a level of nihilism and misanthropy, like exponentially con- concentrated. That like I don't even see in a suicide bomber, because at least they, even if you t- take like the people, let's just take the worst that we can think of, uh, the mm-hmm. 9/11 hijackers. Right. They had a positive cause. I mean, I disagree with it, and it was evil, but at least th- they were like, well, we need to attack. America because they were doing bad things and I'm going to end up in heaven, uh, you know, with Allah. And so like there's, it's demented and evil, but there's a goal. And when I see this kind of thing, it's like, there's not even a goal other than pure destruction. There's no, there's nothing to be gained ideologically from it. There's no, it's just, it's just misanthropy and nihilism, right? Yeah. I, when I so let me just clarify when I'm when I was bringing up suicide bomber I meant from the aspect of attacking normality, right? Um, so like say for example you know the nine eleven after they did that what did we do? We reshaped everything about our air transportation system, created a, a, a new bureau part of the part of the federal government uh, for security. So we did all of these things because they wanted to pierce at the heart of our of our innocence when it comes to something as mundane as getting on a plane and just going to another city. Right. And now we changed everything about ourselves. Right. So it's, it's to pierce at something that seems so normal, like a little kid just going to school one day um, who is so innocent and doing nothing to hurt nobody to, to really drive the fear into, into whether, I don't know. I don't know if he could, assume that this will become a national story or not, maybe so, but like to, to drive at the hearts of the people that are in his neighborhood, uh, that are in it, that's in his community, um, to, to not be forgotten. Um, and maybe, I don't think any, any of this stuff is simple, right? So even when I talk about fatherlessness, I don't think that's the only thing. I think there's a whole bunch of things, sure. different things that are going on. Um, and yeah, he may come to the point where, you know, he's just, he's being sadistic, suicidal, you know, you name it, all, all encompassed into one thing and just ultimately no longer cares. Um, and, and maybe even just hates people in general, sees people as disappointments and hates innocent, thinks no, there's no such thing as innocence because he had no innocence when he was a kid. Who knows what may have happened to him? I don't know his, his entire backstory. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think there, there are some aspects of piercing the heart of the American public 
um, or even if it never became a national story, just his local community um, as source, some sort of revenge for being invisible. Who knows? It, it could be yeah. a bunch of different underlying things. Yeah. Yeah. I The reason that I really – I wish we would talk about this a lot more, and the reason is, you know, when, when I see – you see the news now. Everyone's talking about gun control, right? And <laughs> yeah, and and they're all, you know, you hear the way they they talk. They say things like, "Well, now that you can have so many rounds, now that you can have these kind of weapons, we have to blah 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 blah." It's it's framing it as if the gun control laws like used to be around and aren't anymore, or these weapons like the AR-15 was invented in the fifties. Uh, this is not mm-hmm. a new weapon. Uh, like people could carry hundreds and hundreds of rounds in the past. Like there's nothing new technologically here, and there's nothing new legally. There's no new like uh, you know. I, I get there was a assault weapons ban briefly, which which expired. But like before that and after that, like there was there's nothing new here legally, and yet the entire discussion is around the guns and the law as if there's this is this is new stuff when what what is new has to be something else <laughs> like it's got to be something else that changed because the the technology and the laws haven't really changed for a really 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 long time exactly that yeah that, that was ultimately the point i was trying to make like access to guns for example hasn't really changed the laws haven't really changed yet it seems to be increasing. It seems to be happening more so. Um, these particular events, and, and I would venture to even say uh, things that are gang-oriented were their mass mass shootings. You know, three, three, five, seven people shot, uh, three people die from it, you know, from an event. That's, that's a mass shooting. When you go and shoot up an entire area, and, you know, that's a mass shooting. Um, you know, we just don't like to call it that for very political reasons. Um, yeah. But I, I think that it's, I almost feel like gun control or g- the topic of guns is like this imaginary wedge issue that will never go away, uh, just like how abortion is to some degree, right? For example, the Democrats have been in power for, um, you know, they, for example, they've had, you know, the branches of government to pass whatever they want before when Obama first went into office, right? If they wanted to codify abortion into law for the land, they could have done it, right? If it was that right. important to them, but they didn't, right? Because it's something to campaign on. It's something to keep around. It's it's a it's an issue that they have no real intentions of finding a solution for. Just saying that here's my position, right? They. There's no real interest behind it for them to do so. I kind of feel like it's the same thing when it comes to to guns and gun control. You know, a lot of different topics when it comes to the federal government, you can say, oh, well, both parties feel the same way about it. And then the next step is look at the money. And the other day I was like, let me actually look at uh, the gun lobby, who they fund. And I'm surprised, zero Democrats. Like it was just all Republicans. And so I'm like, this is one of the very few things where it's just down one particular line that they've picked their side and they're supporting one particular side and the other side is 
is choosing not to. It's this issue that will never go away. Um, there, there won't be really any leeway. And we have the Constitution also behind it that is a hurdle for there to be some sort of huge change in, in, uh, in guns. So I kind of feel like it's this thing that we bring up when something unfortunate happens like this, and then give it a week or two, we stop talking about it, we move on to the next news cycle. Same thing with abortion. You know, when uh, the, the debate over Roe v. Wade, when that came up, people were like, this will be the thing that, you know, independents who are going to vote Republican are going to go back to Democrats. I'm like, in three weeks, no one would care anymore. Why? Because they're not trying to get an abortion right now. Like, the, people care that their gas is, you know, through the roof, it's record highs, and that they're not getting an increase in pay because the economy is struggling. So, yeah, they have more important things in this imaginary abortion that they think women should have the right to choose from. Um, so, you know, I kind of feel like it's the same thing when it comes to gun control. We can say all these different things, even after Sandy Hook, we can say all these different things and, and create all these lobbying groups. And, and David Hogg can go on Twitter and complain that no one should have the right to shoot a bullet ever. Um, but nothing will ultimately come from it. I think that it's just much of just fodder. Well, I mean, I partly kind of hope so if if what's going to come from it is is gun laws. But, Me too. Um, but, you know, like it, it just it's fascinating because even, you know, you have you have people who feign uh, depth. Right. They're like, oh, we're going to really roll our sleeves and get up into this serious issue and figure out what's going on. And the stuff they talk about is gun control laws, universal background checks, uh, red flag laws. None of which would have helped in either of the two cases in the last two <laughs> weeks. Zero. Like, OK, so what the hell are you talking? I guess the gun control laws, you could, you could argue could if you banned the guns outright. But like they talk about stuff that either wouldn't help at all or this just outright like, oh, well, we need to ban guns. It's like, OK, well. I understand that discussing broken homes and mental health issues and fatherlessness and uh, the increased uh, uh, addiction or i'll say just delivery of ssris to young men um the uh the the real uh vilification of of masculinity generally um that's that's happened uh, like i i get that all this is really messy um and maybe the answer's not really obvious but i i i i spent actually part of the weekend reaching out to people who are psychologists who study this stuff and no one wants to talk. They're like, well, I don't know. We need more gun laws. It's like, I, this is your <laughs> job. You, you don't even want to do this. This is your fucking job. This is what you study. And they're like, well, yeah, but I can't have a conversation if we can't talk about gun laws. It's like, all right, well, like fine, but no one's looking at this, right? No, seriously looking at it. it they're, they, yeah. like you said, in two weeks, it'll move on and, We'll be talking about something else. And, um, you know, and meanwhile, like, you know, I'm glad you brought up just gun violence in general because mass shootings are a very small percentage of gun violence. I think here we'll go to I'm going to go over to. I'll just just let's look it up. HeyJackass.com. If anyone ever wants to keep track of Chicago, you can go to HeyJackass.com. Let's see. <laughs> Memorial Day weekend so far. Six people have been killed and 37 wounded in Chicago over Memorial Day weekend. Uh, to date in May, 
50 people have been shot and killed. 280 have been shot and wounded. Um, and the year to date in Chicago is 220 shot and killed. I mean, that's one city. That's one city. Um, and you know what's what's even funnier about that? Uh, you, I don't know if you even saw this, but John Legend thought he was being this uh, very intelligent guy by saying, well, people want to talk about Chicago because I, I believe he's I believe he's from Chicago. People want to talk about Chicago. Well, here are the uh, <laughs> the most violent states and in showing the, the red states as the uh, that have the highest uh, like I forgot the exact like uh, shooting deaths or something like that. But we're talking about a city, not a state. Right. right. And yeah. It, <laughs> you know, yeah. It, it's, the rest it's of Illinois isn't like this, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And also what he doesn't account for is suicides within within this. So they just talk about gun violence. Uh, but right. suicide is a huge factor when we talk about these these particular things. The reason we don't talk about it is because it disproportionately affects men. Right. Men are the ones who are killing yes. themselves. Right. If if women were committing suicide at a high rate, we'd be talking about this. We'd talk about the mental health of women. If you would do it nonstop, it would be, yeah, there would be constant pearl clutching on the view. And yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and you, you know, I, I, as much as I don't understand the underlying causes here, and I don't think anyone does, I will venture to say it's likely true that the rise in male suicides is correlated to the rise in mass shootings and f- because they have a common factor like yeah. my guess is there's a common there's a common mental health factor there's a common factor leading men to kill themselves and leading the most unstable or nihilistic or misanthropic ones to do horrific mass killings right right you know and so there's two things i actually want to bring up part of the problem is that we think every solution has to come from the government this is why we don't talk about these things the government can't legislate your father being at home with you. They can't legislate it, right? right. They, but what they can do is, you know, send them to court and make them pay and doing all this different stuff, right? And reduce the value of a father. But they can't make your father be there. They can't make your father care about you, right? So, yeah, there there are very complicated things that are culturally based, right? There is a, a Western culture um, I've heard this from people in in Canada and in the UK. So that's why I say Western, but let's just say American. There's an American cultural aspect where we are degrading family, we're degrading uh, marriage and its importance um, and, and the importance of nuclear family. We're uplifting the single parent household and we're wondering why boys are feeling like life doesn't matter, they feel purposeless all the time we talk about men aren't catching up to the women, right? As if we're just inherently born deficient recently. It's like, no, there, there are certain situations that are happening. You know, I talk about single parenthood. And when we do, we usually talk about in, in the black, black community because it's at a, like around 70% rate, right? But with, what was it, 13% of the population, White Americans are, I believe, let's check, like around 60% of the population. And so, or maybe it's a little bit less, maybe it's close to 50% or something like that. Um, But even still, far more white Americans, yet the rate is 25%, which means there are a lot more white Americans 
Americans, <laughs> than black Americans who are growing up in single parent households. This is a huge problem. And so this, this is something that's affecting everybody. And we have to be able to talk about the role of fathers, the role of family, and how the, the degrade and the numbers keep increasing and how it's affecting boys, right? But the only time we want to talk about boys is when they out, uh, when they uh, act out, when they, yep. when they do something like a mass shooting, when they hurt other people, right? We barely talk, we don't even really talk about them when they kill themselves. So that's not enough. No, they have we don't to, at all. Yeah. We have, they have to hurt other people, right? They have to do something that is detrimental to society. Then we'll, we'll notice them, but we'll only notice them to, to, uh, you know, say how detrimental they are. Well, I'd like to point something out. We don't even talk about them when they kill other men, their age. Like if you, most of the, most of that violence in Chicago, I don't know, but I'm going to guess it's probably young men between 18 and 24 killing each other. Yeah. Right. Like that's, probably what that is um probably young black men honestly killing killing each other in chicago that's probably what it is um and we don't talk about that very much um because i guess we don't care unless they go into you know the school or a tops or whatever and and do it on mass um there's there's let me read a let me read a super chat um G-Man yeah. says, any 2A critic who says an unarmed populace couldn't stand up to the force of an oppressive government may only look at Uvalde. One lunatic had 20 officers outside pissing their pants, waiting for backup. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that bothers me about, there's there's a couple things that bother me about the just the, the response of people in that situation. Everyone's focusing on how long it took, and I think it did take like an hour for police to enter the classroom that he was barricaded in. And I assume he just killing everyone in the classroom or shooting everyone in the class. Like it took them a long time and they had 911 calls where they knew that there was people in there that were uh, a threat. It's not clear if there's a communication breakdown or whatever, but so there's, there's problems on law enforcement side. But one of the things that struck me, and I mentioned this to you before the show, Adam, no one's mentioning there was shooting outside, outside the school for 12 full minutes, 12 minutes. And I just thought to myself, man, if I'm in a school, if I'm a teacher in a school or a kid in a school and someone's shooting a gun out on the front lawn for 12 minutes, uh, I wouldn't be in the school by the time he came in the school. Like I would be long gone. Like this would be a, Okay, someone's outside shooting guns. Let's get the F out, right? Like, lock the doors and get out. Get out. Uh, and I, the, the strange thing to me is this protocol of, well, we, someone's outside shooting, so what we do is barricade ourselves in our classrooms and cower under the desks. And hope and just hope that it's like pray that it's not happening. Wait for law enforcement. It's I, I just, you know, as a father, I mean, I had a conversation with my daughter about this because obviously she hears about it at school because it's, you know, they talk about it. And, you know, I was like, look, if someone's shooting on the front lawn, I just run out the back door and keep running. Like, I don't like just don't stop until you collapse from exhaustion. Just run. Like, I don't you don't this. I don't know what I don't I can't imagine the mindset of there's someone on the front lawn of our school shooting or across the street and we're just going to sit here. Am I the only one that are you freaked out by that? I just don't get it. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. Actually, have you, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the Daily Wire movie, Run, Hide, Fight. Have you ever seen that? No. It's actually okay. a really good movie. It's a really good okay. movie. But the basis of it is uh, the, the, lead, the lead character is a girl who's at school. She eventually escapes herself. She gets out of the school, but realizes she's the only one that's out of the school. And so she's not under the radar of anybody as of yet. So she takes it upon herself, like, I got to get people out of here. And so she's going to classrooms saying, get out, right? They're in the classrooms with the teacher and they're just sitting there waiting because that's part of the lockdown protocol is to sit there. And she says, you need to get out. It is dangerous. Go now. And so she's the hero because she's telling people to do what you're actually supposed to do. You're supposed to leave. You're supposed to get out of danger. And so she's getting them out of the, out of the school. So she's kind of the, the hero in the story. But I was telling you uh, before the show, you know, I, we had a scare um, uh, at the Elizabeth Mall here in Jersey where um, it's actually kind of funny for a second because I was literally Googling guns gun facts <laughs> like I'm just like looking up, yeah i'm like semi-automatic and i'm just looking up different stuff and then all of a sudden i hear a panic i hear a commotion and i look up and i could see into the hallway of the mall people running frantically and all of a sudden like some people started coming into the back and um you know in, in a matter of moments people are saying like they're shooting they're like oh shit so I come back into the dressing room. My wife is getting changed, but she hears the commotion. And her perspective is kind of like she's getting dressed. She hears craziness. So she stops and listens to hear if like were there gunshots or something. So she opened the door and she saw me standing right there. People started piling into the, into the dressing rooms at first. Then the employees said, go into the back area. So we went into the back area where they keep all the inventory. And so we're standing there, but the only thing I could think to myself is we're fucking sitting ducks. Like, why are we sitting here? Like, I understand they have a lockdown protocol, which in some ways is good. Like close the, close the doors to the, to the stores to try to prevent them from coming in there easily. Right. But every mall has a back exit. Uh, You know, they have an exit right there. Like why yeah. why are we stand why are we standing right here? Everybody who can should be getting the hell out of the building if there's in fact a, a threat, a potential threat. And if it's a false alarm, it's a false alarm. Right? Why are we sitting here? And the other thing that crossed my mind is I'm in a state where you can't open carry. Right. We're sitting ducks. You know, so if someone actually did want to come back here, well, I guess it's just me, you know, standing in front of a bullet for my wife and I die. And hoping yeah. that she doesn't get shot, like that's the reality when it when it comes to stuff like this. Thankfully, it was a it was a false alarm. Um, it was some sort of like a large group of kids came in and, and um, created some like loud noise. And I guess people are on edge. And what you know, two people start running, then other people start running and say one thing. So I can understand like you can create a panic in a matter of seconds. Uh, you know, yep. you see. A couple people running in a direction, uh, yeah, it's probably a good idea to start running too. Um, so, you know, I, I just thought to myself, like, why are we sitting right here? 
Why, why are we yeah. sitting in this spot if there's, in fact, someone who is maniacal and walking around and actually wants to shoot people? Like, we need right. to get out the exit. There's an exit door right standing right there. Let's fucking go. Yeah. It, it, yeah. To me, that that was the that was the craziest thing I could think of. And it's the same thing with these schools. Like, I can understand to a degree if they're shooting outside and there's a misunderstanding or miscommunication, you don't know where the shooting is coming from. Like, all you hear is loud noises. You don't know if it's in the front, backside, wherever. Sure. But at some point, someone has to say, get out. We have to you got get 12 out minutes to figure out where it's coming from. So, I mean. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I get it to a degree where you want to lock down. But lockdown only makes sense if you actually lock down. Like, to my understanding, the door was able to be open. So what kind of lockdown is that? I, yeah, I, he got in. So I don't know. Yeah, right. He got into the school and to, to a classroom. So, I, yeah, I don't know the details. But, yeah, it wasn't even that great of a lockdown. I think one of the people, one of the girls, a nine-year-old, survived by climbing out a window and running away. Like, you know, okay. Um, like, doing the obvious thing right um so i mean it's just look i mean i i can geek out on tactics stuff right or and you know i can geek out on this kind of stuff just because it's my personality but ultimately we shouldn't really be having to have conversations about the best way to protect fourth graders from not getting murdered right, in right, their right, school right. by a mad gunman so i mean you know but uh that kind of stuff just it does it does fascinate me and um I don't I don't understand the mentality of of these people who are just like, let's cower and wait. Let's just cower and wait. Um, that just, I, you know, maybe it works sometimes, I guess. But I, how many times does running out the back door not work? I, I don't know. I mean, it yeah. seems like that's that's a better technique. So, um, um, Dion, so, someone oh, asked, how come, I, how come I didn't go to the exit is because we were prevented from going to the exit. Mm-hmm. That's why it wasn't just us. It's not like it was in a store of two people. There were a lot of people that were there, and we were prevented from le- leaving the exit. They had closed the door and locked it. So they locked the exit. I because it has an alarm. So initially, actually, here's the thing. Initially, because we weren't in the front of the people who were initially going in, into the back, we were somewhere like in the middle, and so initially they were saying, "Go through the exit," right? And then some people started going through the exit. The alarm started going off, and that freaked them out because that would trigger, you know, if someone's walking around with a gun, that there's people over here. So yeah. they closed the door, and they had, they had a key, to, and they had to lock it to shut the alarm off. So that's that's why we didn't go through the exit. I was I was ready to go through, and they had stopped it a number of people just before us. So they said for us to, to go to the side. Uh, into the inventory area, so that's why that's why we didn't leave. I was I was ready to get the fuck out of there. Um, I mean, I'm I'm glad it was a false alarm. Um, yeah, me too. You know, but social pressure stops us from doing a lot of things, right? Like you don't want to be the asshole that runs through the door and sets off the alarm in the case where it's a false alarm, but in the case where it's a real shooting, it's probably okay to be the asshole that sets off the fire alarm, barging through the back door, right? Like. Um, yeah, you know, but you tough. know what? It, 
and, and um, I know you're not from New Jersey. Uh, anybody who's from New Jersey, I, I did live in Camden, or I lived in Cherry Hill and worked oh, in Camden did? for a while. So yes, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, you're you're in South Jersey. Okay, um, Elizabeth is right next to Newark, and even Elizabeth is a a little bit of a rough, um, a little bit of a rough area. So you know, I'm pretty analytical, and I'm thinking about all these different things at that moment in my head because actually that mall has had shootings before. Just so you know. Okay. Um. So they had shootings. Actually, I think it was, one of them was on a Black Friday. They had a shooting, which is like the worst time to have some sort of shooting like that. But they, they've had shootings before, and they were um, conflict-related, right? So we're, we're kind of like in a rough area. Um, you know, oh, so you're figuring that come in there. Some gang yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. That's, uh, you know, that is more likely, and actually that's actually happened where there were shootings at, you know, at the location. So Hiding away so that you don't get shot by some stray bullet or something like that makes most sense there. Um, so that's that's kind of where my head was at. It's kind of like, yeah. all right, let's stay calm. And, you know, even though I was ready to go through the back, they stopped. It was like, okay. But more likely, this is like some some gang thing or some fighting thing. And it was. It involves some young kids who, who caused, a bunch of, caused a bunch of trouble. So that's why I, I wasn't thinking in that way of some maniacal persons going store by store trying to kill people yeah it is rare that that happens i mean yeah. as much as we gets in the news it is rare g-man says the sheriff was whining about needing more equipment after they had everything they needed taxpayers can't fund courage didn't expect this from texas yeah i mean i i i don't think there was an in my understanding is there's no equipment problems other than maybe no one was communicating um to the person in charge at, on the scene, but yeah, I mean, you can't, yeah, you can't find courage. Um, Dion says there was a video on Twitter where they talked to someone who supposedly knew the shooter. This is Uvalde. And he said he was a bully and that he didn't, he did hurt animals and was not a good person. So maybe not a history of uh, convictions or anything, but at least, kind of known to be not a great not a great person yeah i don't know yeah it's tough man i i don't know well um look adam how can people follow you where can they find your work online this has been a great conversation um how can people get more of you um you can follow me mostly on twitter these days uh at wrong underscore speak um just like you see on the screen. Um, and you can also follow me on Instagram, uh, same handle on Facebook, wrongspeakadam, facebook.com slash wrongspeakadam. Um, or you can just go to wrongspeak.net uh, if you want to send a message or if you ever want to write an article for wrongspeak. Uh, just tell me what you want to write about and we'll discuss it from there. Um, as far as my book, you can purchase it on wrongspeak.net um, as well as sign copies um, or you can go to Amazon, you can get an ebook or you get the paperback. Um, and the paperback is also available on barnesandnoble.com. Cool. Well, look, man, thank you very much for, for joining. It was a great pleasure to talk to you and, uh, I'm sure we'll have you back, but in the meantime, take care. Thank you. Everyone. Thanks for watching. Um, we will see you on, I actually don't know what shows are coming up, but at least this Wednesday there's a Dangerous Thoughts. And on Friday I have an interview with Axel Kaiser to talk about Chile's uh, imminent Marxist 
constitution, which should be interesting. So bye, everyone. Have a good week, and I'll see you later. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production does not meet WHO health and safety standards. Please report to a United Nations sanitization center immediately. Association with the following individuals is strictly prohibited. Experts who benefit from printing money agree that printing money does not cause price inflation. Trust me, just two more weeks to slow the spread of monkeypox. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.